Chapter 10 of The Custom of the Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Custom of the Country by Edith Wharton. Chapter 10. Mr. and Mrs. Spragg were both given to such long periods of ruminating apathy that the student of inheritance might have wondered whence Undine derived her overflowing activity. The answer would have been obtained by observing her father's business life. From the moment he set foot in Wall Street, Mr. Spragg became another man. Physically, the change revealed itself only by the subtlest signs. As he steered his way to his office through the jostling crowd of William Street, his relaxed muscles did not grow more taut or his lounging gait less desultory. His shoulders were hollowed by the usual droop, and his rusty black waistcoat showed the same creased concavity at the waist, and the same flabby prominence below. It was only in his face that the difference was perceptible, though even here it rather lurked behind the features than openly modified them, showing itself now and then in the cautious glint of half-closed eyes, the forward thrust of black brows, or a tightening of the lax lines of the mouth as the gleam of a night-watchman's light might flash across the darkness of a shattered house-front. The shutters were more tightly barred than usual, when on a morning some two weeks later than the date of the incidents last recorded, Mr. Spragg approached the steel and concrete tower in which his office occupied a lofty pigeonhole. Events had moved rapidly and somewhat surprisingly in the interval, and Mr. Spragg had already accustomed himself to the fact that his daughter was to be married within the week instead of awaiting the traditional post-Lenten date. Conventionally, the change meant little to him, but on the practical side it presented unforeseen difficulties. Mr. Spragg had learned within the last weeks that a New York marriage involved material obligations unknown to Apex. Marvel, indeed, had been loftily careless of such questions, but his grandfather, on the announcement of the engagement, had called on Mr. Spragg and put before him, with polished precision, the young man's financial situation. Mr. Spragg, at that moment, had been inclined to deal with his visitor in a spirit of indulgent irony. As he leaned back in his revolving chair, with feet adroitly balanced against a tilted scrap-basket, his air of relaxed power made Mr. Dagonet's venerable elegance seem as harmless as that of an ivory jack-straw, and his first replies to his visitor were made with the mildness of a kindly giant. "'Ralph don't make a living out of the law, you say? "'No, it didn't strike me he'd be likely to, from the talks I've had with him. "'Fact is, the law's a business that wants—' "'Mr. Spragg broke off, checked by a protest from Mr. Dagonet. "'Oh, a profession, you call it. "'It ain't a business.' "'His smile grew more indulgent as this novel distinction dawned on him. "'Why, I guess it's the whole trouble with Ralph. "'Nobody expects to make money in a profession.' "'and if you've taught him to regard the law that way, "'he'd better go right into cooking stoves and done with it.' "'Mr. Dagonet, within a narrower range, "'had his own play of humour, "'and it met Mr. Spragg's with a leap. "'It's because I knew he would manage to make cooking stoves "'as unremunerative as a profession "'that I saved him from so glaring a failure "'by putting him into the law.' "'The retort drew a grunt of amusement from Mr. Spragg, "'and the eyes of the two men met in unexpected understanding.' "'That's so. What can he do, then?' the future father-in-law inquired. "'He can write poetry. At least he tells me he can,' Mr. Dagonet hesitated, 
as if aware of the inadequacy of the alternative, and then added, "'And he can count on three thousand a year from me.' Mr. Spragg tilted himself farther back without disturbing his subtly calculated relation to the scrap-basket. "'Does it cost anything like that to print his poetry?' Mr. Dagonet smiled again. He was clearly enjoying his visit. "'Dear, no. He doesn't go in for Lux editions, and now and then he gets ten dollars from a magazine.' Mr. Spragg mused. "'Wasn't he ever taught to work?' "'No. I really couldn't have afforded that.' "'I see. Then they've got to live on two hundred fifty dollars a month.' Mr. Dagonet remained pleasantly unmoved. "'Does it cost anything like that to buy your daughter's dresses?' A subterranean chuckle agitated the lower folds of Mr. Spragg's waistcoat. "'I might put him in the way of something. I guess he's smart enough.' Mr. Dagonet made a gesture of friendly warning. "'It will pay us both in the end to keep him out of business,' he said, rising as if to show that his mission was accomplished. The results of this friendly conference had been more serious than Mr. Spragg could have foreseen, and the victory remained with his antagonist. It had not entered into Mr. Spragg's calculations that he would have to give his daughter any fixed income on her marriage. He meant that she should have the handsomest wedding in New York press had ever celebrated, and her mother's fancy was already afloat on a sea of luxuries, a motor, a Fifth Avenue house, and a tiara that should outblaze Mrs. Van Degen's. But these were movable benefits to be conferred whenever Mr. Spragg happened to be on the right side of the market. It was a different matter to be called on, at such short notice, to bridge the gap between young Marvel's allowance and Undine's requirements, and her father's immediate conclusion was that the engagement had better be broken off. Such decisions were almost painless in Apex, and he fancied it would be easy, by an appeal to the girl's pride, to make her see that she owed it to herself to do better. "'You'd better wait a while and look round again,' was the way he had put it to her at the opening of the talk, of which, even now, he could not recall the close without a tremor. Undine, when she took his meaning, had been terrible. Everything had gone down before her, as towns and villages went down before one of the tornadoes of her native state. "'Wait a while? Look round? Did he suppose she was marrying for money?' Didn't he see it was all a question, now and here, of the kind of people she wanted to go with? Did he want to throw her straight back into the Lipscomb set, to have her marry a dentist and live in a West Side flat? Why hadn't they stayed in Apex if that was all he thought she was fit for? She might as well have married Millard Binch instead of handing him over to Indiana Frusk. Couldn't her father understand that nice girls in New York didn't regard getting married like going on a buggy ride? It was enough to ruin a girl's chances if she broke her engagement to a man in Ralph Marvel's set. All kinds of spiteful things would be said about her, and she would never be able to go with the right people again. They had better go back to Apex right off. It was they and not she who had wanted to leave Apex anyhow. She could call her mother to witness it. She had always, when it came to that, done what her father and mother wanted, but she'd given up trying to make out what they were after, unless it was to make her miserable. And if that was it, hadn't they had enough of it by this time? She had, anyhow. But after this she meant to lead her own life, and they needn't ask her where she was going, or what she meant to do, because this time she'd die before she told them, and they'd made life so hateful to her that she only wished she was dead already. Mr. Spragg heard her out in silence, pulling at his beard with one sallow, wrinkled hand, 
while the other dragged down the armhole of his waistcoat. Suddenly he looked up and said, "'Ain't you in love with the fellow, Undy?' The girl glared back at him, her splendid brows beetling like an Amazon's. "'Do you think I'd care a cent for all the rest of it if I wasn't?' "'Well, if you are, you and he won't mind being in a small way.' Her look poured contempt on his ignorance. "'Do you suppose I'd drag him down?' With a magnificent gesture, she tore Marvel's ring from her finger. "'I'll send this back this minute. I'll tell him I thought he was a rich man, and now I see I'm mistaken.' She burst into shattering sobs, rocking her beautiful body back and forward in all the abandonment of young grief, and her father stood over her, stroking her shoulder and saying helplessly, I'll see what I can do, Undine. All his life, and at ever-diminishing intervals, Mr. Sprague had been called on by his womankind to see what he could do, and the seeing had almost always resulted as they wished. Undine did not have to send back her ring, and in her state of trance-like happiness she hardly asked by what means her path had been smoothed, but merely accepted her mother's assurances that father had fixed everything all right. Mr. Sprague accepted the situation also. A son-in-law who expected to be pensioned, like a Grand Army veteran, was a phenomenon new to his experience. But if that was what Undine wanted, she should have it. Only two days later, however, he was met by a new demand. The young people had decided to be married right off, instead of waiting till June. This change of plan was made known to Mr. Sprague at a moment when he was peculiarly unprepared for the financial readjustment it necessitated. He had always declared himself able to cope with any crisis if Undine and her mother would go steady, but he now warned them of his inability to keep up with the new pace they had set. Undine, not deigning to return to the charge, had commissioned her mother to speak for her, and Mr. Sprague was surprised to meet in his wife a firmness as inflexible as his daughter's. "'I can't do it, Lute. I can't put my hand on the cash,' he, he had protested. But Mrs. Sprague fought him inch by inch her back to the wall, flinging out at last as he pressed her closer. Well, if you want to know, she's seen Elmer. The bolt reached its mark, and her husband turned an agitated face on her. Elmer? What on earth? He didn't come here. No, but he sat next to her the other night at the theater, and she's wild with us for not having warned her. Mr. Sprague's scowl drew his projecting brows together. Warned her of what? "'What's Elmer to her? Why is she afraid of Elmer Moffat?' "'She's afraid of his talking.' "'Talking? What on earth can he say that'll hurt her?' "'Oh, I don't know,' Mrs. Sprague wailed. "'She's so nervous I can hardly get a word out of her.' Mr. Sprague's whitening face showed the touch of a new fear. "'Is she afraid he'll get round her again, make up to her? Is that what she means by talking?' "'I don't know, I don't know. I only know she's afraid.' She's afraid as death of him. For a long interval they sat silently looking at each other while their heavy eyes exchanged conjectures. Then Mr. Sprague rose from his chair, saying, as he took up his hat, Don't you fret, Leota, I'll see what I can do. He had been seeing now for an arduous fortnight, and the strain on his vision had resulted in a state of tension such as he had not undergone since the epic days of the pure water move at Apex. It was not his habit to impart his fears to Mrs. Sprague and Undine, 
and they continued the bridal preparations, secure in their invariable experience that, once father had been convinced of the impossibility of evading their demands, he might be trusted to satisfy them by means with which his womenkind need not concern themselves. Mr. Sprague, as he approached his office on the morning in question, felt reasonably sure of fulfilling these expectations. But he reflected that a few more such victories would mean disaster. He entered the vast marble vestibule of the Ararat Trust Building, and walked toward the express elevator that was to carry him up to his office. At the door of the elevator a man turned to him, and he recognized Elmer Moffat, who put out his hand with an easy gesture. Mr. Sprague did not ignore the gesture. He did not even withhold his hand. In his code the cut, as a conscious sign of disapproval, did not exist. In the South, if you had a grudge against a man, you tried to shoot him. In the West, you tried to do him in a mean turn in business. But in neither region was the cut among the social weapons of offense. Mr. Sprague, therefore, seeing Moffat in his path, extended a lifeless hand while he faced the young man scowlingly. Moffat met the hand and the scowl with equal coolness. "'Going up to your office? I was on my way there.' The elevator door rolled back, and Mr. Sprague entering it found his companion at his side. They remained silent during the ascent to Mr. Sprague's threshold, but there the latter turned to inquire ironically of Moffat. "'Anything left to say?' Moffat smiled. "'Nothing left. No. I'm carrying a whole new line of goods.' Mr. Sprague pondered the reply. Then he opened the door and suffered Moffat to follow him in, behind an inner glazed enclosure with its one window dimmed by a sooty perspective barred with chimneys, he seated himself at a dusty littered desk, and groped instinctively for the support of the scrap-basket. Moffat, uninvited, dropped into the nearest chair, and Mr. Sprague said, after another silence, "'I'm pretty busy this morning.' "'I know you are. That's why I'm here,' Moffat serenely answered. He leaned back, crossing his legs and twisting his small, stiff mustache with a plump hand adorned by a cameo. "'Fact is,' he went on, "'this is a coals of fire call. You think I owe you a grudge, and I'm going to show you that I'm not that kind. I'm going to put you on to a good thing. Oh, not because I'm so fond of you, just because it happens to hit my sense of a joke.' While Moffat talked, Mr. Sprague took up the pile of letters on his desk and sat shuffling them like a pack of cards. He dealt them deliberately to two imaginary players. Then he pushed them aside and drew out his watch. "'All right, I carry one, too,' said the young man easily. "'But you'll find it's time gained to hear what I've got to say.' Mr. Sprague considered the vista of chimneys without speaking, and Moffat continued. I don't suppose you care to hear the story of my life, so I won't refer you to the back numbers. You used to say out in Apex that I spent too much time loafing round the bar of the Mealy House. That was one of the things you had against me. Well, maybe I did, but it taught me to talk and to listen to the other fellows, too. Just at present, I'm one of Harmon B. Driscoll's private secretaries, and some of that Mealy House loafing has come in more useful than any job I ever put my hand to. The old man happened to hear how I knew something about the inside of the Yuba deal, and took me on to have the information where he could get at it. I've given him good talk for his money, but I've done some listening too. Yuba ain't the only commodity the Driscolls deal in. 
Mr. Sprague restored his watch to his pocket and shifted his drowsy gaze from the window to his visitor's face. "'Yes,' said Moffat, as if in reply to the movement. "'The Driscolls are getting busy out in Apex. Now they've got all the street railroads in their pocket. They want the water supply, too. But you know that as well as I do. Fact is, they've got to have it, and there's where you and I come in.' Mr. Sprague thrust his hands in his waistcoat armholes and turned his eyes back to the window. "'I'm out of that long ago,' he said indifferently. "'Sure,' Moffat acquiesced. "'But you know what went on when you were in it.' "'Well,' said Mr. Sprague, shifting one hand to the Masonic emblem on his watch chain. "'Well, Representative James J. Rolliver, who was in it with you, ain't out of it yet.' He's the man the Driscolls are up against. What do you know about him? Mr. Sprague twirled the emblem thoughtfully. Driscoll tell you to come here? Moffat laughed. No, sir, not by a good many miles. Mr. Sprague removed his feet from the scrap basket and straightened himself in his chair. Well, I didn't either. Good morning, Mr. Moffat. The young man stared a moment a humorous glint in his small black eyes, and he made no motion to leave his seat. "'Undine's to be married next week, isn't she?' he asked in a conversational tone. Mr. Sprague's face blackened, and he swung about in his revolving chair. "'You go to—' Moffat raised a deprecating hand. "'Oh, you needn't warn me off. I don't want to be invited to the wedding, and I don't want to forbid the bands.' There was a derisive sound in Mr. Sprague's throat. "'But I do want to get out of Driscoll's office,' Moffat imperturbably continued. "'There's no future there for a fellow like me. "'I see things big. "'That's the reason Apex was too tight a fit for me. "'It's only the little fellows that succeed in little places. "'New York's my size, without a single alteration. "'I could prove it to you tomorrow if I could put my hand on fifty thousand dollars.' "'Mr. Sprague did not repeat his gesture of dismissal. He was once more listening guardedly but intently. Moffat saw it and continued. And I could put my hand on double that sum. Yes, sir, double. If you'd just step round with me to old Driscoll's office before 5 p.m. See the connection, Mr. Sprague? The older man remained silent while his visitor hummed a bar or two of In the Gloaming. Then he said, You want me to tell Driscoll what I know about James J. Rolliver? I want you to tell the truth. I want you to stand for political purity in your native state. A man of your prominence owes it to the community, sir, cried Moffat. Mr. Sprague was still tormenting his Masonic emblem. Rolliver and I always stood together, he said at last, with a tinge of reluctance. Well, how much have you made out of it? Ain't he always been ahead of the game? I can't do it. I can't do it, said Mr. Sprague, bringing his clenched hand down on the desk, as if addressing an invisible throng of assailants. Moffat rose without any evidence of disappointment in his ready countenance. Well, so long, he said, moving toward the door. Near the threshold, he paused to add carelessly. Excuse my referring to a personal matter, but I understand Miss Sprague's wedding takes place next Monday. Mr. Sprague was silent. "'How's that?' Moffat continued, unabashed. "'I saw in the papers the date was set for the end of June.' 
Mr. Spragg rose heavily from his seat. "'I presume my daughter has her reasons,' he said, moving toward the door in Moffat's wake. "'I guess she has, same as I have for wanting you to step round with me to old Driscoll's. "'If Undine's reasons are as good as mine—' "'Stop right here, Elmer Moffat,' the old man broke out with lifted hand. Moffat made a burlesque feint of evading a blow. Then his face grew serious, and he moved close to Mr. Spragg, whose arm had fallen to his side. "'See here, I know Undine's reasons. I've had a talk with her, didn't she tell you? She don't beat round the bush the way you do. She told me straight out what was bothering her. She wants the Marvels to think she's right out of kindergarten. No good sent out on approval from this counter. And I see her point. I don't mean to publish my memoirs. Only a deal's deal." He paused a moment, twisting his fingers about the heavy gold watch chain that crossed his waistcoat. "'Tell you what, Mr. Spragg, I don't bear malice, not against Undine, anyway. And if I could have afforded it, I'd have been glad enough to oblige her and forget old times. But you didn't hesitate to kick me when I was down, and it's taken me a day or two to get back on my legs again after that kicking. I see my way now to get there and keep there and there's a kinder poetic justice in your being the man to help me up. If I can get hold of fifty thousand dollars within a day or so, I don't care who's got the start of me. I've got a dead sure thing in sight, and you're the only man that can get it for me. Now do you see where we're coming out?" Mr. Sprague, during this discourse, had remained motionless, his hands in his pockets, his jaws moving mechanically, as though he mumbled a toothpick under his beard. His sallow cheek had turned a shade paler, and his brows hung threateningly over his half-closed eyes. There was no threat. There was scarcely more than a note of dull curiosity in the voice with which he said, "'You mean to talk?' Moffat's rosy face grew as hard as a steel safe. "'I mean you to talk. The old Driscoll.' He paused, and then added, it's a hundred thousand down, between us." Mr. Spragg once more consulted his watch. "'I'll see you again,' he said with an effort. Moffat struck one fist against the other. "'No, sir, you won't. You'll only hear from me through the Marvel family. Your news ain't worth a dollar to Driscoll if he don't get it today.' He was checked by the sound of steps in the outer office, and Mr. Spragg's stenographer appeared in the doorway. "'It's Mr. Marvel,' she announced, and Ralph Marvel, glowing with haste and happiness, stood between the two men, holding out his hand to Mr. Spragg. "'Am I awfully in the way, sir? Turn me out if I am, but first let me just say a word about this necklace I've ordered for un—' He broke off, made aware by Mr. Spragg's glance of the presence of Elmer Moffat, who, with unwonted discretion, had dropped back into the shadow of the door. Marvel turned on Moffat a bright gaze full of the instinctive hospitality of youth, but Moffat looked straight past him at Mr. Spragg. The latter, as if in response to an imperceptible signal, mechanically pronounced his visitor's name, and the two young men moved toward each other. "'I beg your pardon most awfully. Am I breaking up an important conference?' Ralph asked as he shook hands. "'Why, no. I guess we're pretty nearly through.' I'll step outside and woo the blonde while you're talking." Moffat rejoined in the same key. "'Thanks so much, I shan't take two seconds.' Ralph broke off to scrutinize him. 
But haven't we met before? It seems to me I've seen you just lately. Moffat seemed about to answer, but his reply was checked by an abrupt movement on the part of Mr. Spragg. There was a perceptible pause, during which Moffat's bright black glance rested questioningly on Ralph. Then he looked again at the older man, and their eyes held each other for a silent moment. "'Why, no, not as I'm aware of, Mr. Marble,' Moffat said, addressing himself amicably to Ralph. "'Better late than never, though, and I hope to have the pleasure soon again.' He divided a nod between the two men, and passed into the outer office, where they heard him addressing the stenographer in a strain of exaggerated gallantry. End of chapter 10